Hello and welcome to Fueling the Transition, the podcast series from A3 Management Consulting that's all to do with decarbonization, decentralization and digitalization of the energy sector as we approach net zero. My name's Matt Brown. I'm Vice President in the Management Consulting Division at A3 and I'm responsible for the energy practice. I'm very pleased to welcome Nick Eyre uh, to the podcast. And Nick is a professor of energy and climate policy and senior research fellow in energy at the Environmental Change Institute and a supernumerary fellow at Oriel College. Nick, hello and welcome. Hello, Matt. It's nice to be here. Excellent. And with me also, I have my colleague Bettina Wittneben. Bettina is looking after our ESG areas in the UK. Hello, Bettina. Hi, very nice to be here. Wonderful. Nick, why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit further and say what areas of work you're looking at in terms of energy and climate policy. Thanks, Matt. Yes. So as you said, I'm Professor of Energy and Climate Policy at the University of Oxford. My day job is Director of the Centre for Research into Energy Demand Solutions, which is a large cross-university interdisciplinary centre looking at energy use, energy demand, energy efficiency, mainly in the UK. I'm also uh, an acting co-director of a new institute in the University of Oxford that's just been set up called the Zero Institute, and Zero stands for Zero Carbon Energy Research Oxford, which tells you what the institute will be doing over over the next few years. So that's more broadly looking at, at the energy transition, but most of my background over the last 30 years or so has been on energy use. Wonderful. Well, thanks for that. And uh, just sort of jumping straight in, I'm wondering what... What's been your motivation? What's been your driving uh, force, if you like, in your work? Well, I guess I was always, from being a child, interested in the way the world worked, and that that took me into physics. And then I perhaps naively thought that you could learn more about the world by digging inside and looking at how smaller and smaller things worked and and what matter was composed of. So that took me to to nuclear physics and, and then into nuclear energy. I was also then learning that actually just taking things to pieces isn't the way you learn the way about the world works, that there's the social issues, the systemic issues. And I got interested in those as well. And whilst I was working for the UK Atomic Energy Authority, moved over to the unit that they had that worked on energy efficiency and renewable energy. And that's how I began the career in that in that area. Wonderful. And I was also at AAT in the energy technology support unit, but I think you just left as I was joining as a young consultant there. Yeah, you're just a youngster, Matt, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not so much anymore, I suppose. I just want to follow up on that. What is your fascination with energy, though? What's, uh, you know, what is the curiosity behind that? Uh, what drives you every day to be thinking about these problems? I guess I learned at quite an early age that energy was pretty critical in environmental issues. I've always been interested in in environmental issues and most of the problems that people talked about back in those days, acid rain, air pollution, they were were linked to energy. I come from a part of the world, uh, the north of England, where the Industrial Revolution started. Uh, And so I sort of had that understanding that energy was pretty fundamental to the way that the world had developed, both the benefits it gives us, but also the downsides too. I see. 
And tell us a bit more about Zero, which you set up at the University of Oxford and the new energy systems transition hub in Oxford's Osney Mead. What does this hub do and who's all part of it? And can you just walk in there and talk about energy? What happens? Well, it's all very new. We're just getting it off the ground, really, Bettina. Um, so there's two things that, that you mentioned. There's the, the Zero Institute, which, as I said, stands for Zero Carbon Energy Research Oxford. And that's an institute of the university. It's been pulled together by colleagues from engineering science, from the School of Geography and Environment, and from uh, materials department as well. So it's quite interdisciplinary, aiming to look at some of the systemic issues in the energy transition. I think Oxford and, and probably universities more generally, because they tend to be departmentally focused, are quite good at looking at individual components of what we need um, for the energy transition. I say they're quite good at looking at pieces of the jigsaw, but not not so much the whole jigsaw. So the things we want to look at are things that cut across the range of issues are more systemic in character. So there'll be programs on energy demand reduction, on heating and cooling, on uh, interconversion between electricity and, and, and hydrogen, things that in Oxford we've got a bit of an interest in, but probably haven't developed as much as we should have and are critical for the energy transition. So Zero Institute is an institute of the university. We're just advertising for a permanent director now, so we'll be able to say a lot more about the future direction uh, in a few months' time. The institute will be located in uh, a new building called TESSA. TESSA stands for the Energy System Accelerator, and this is a really exciting development as, as far as the university is concerned. As you said, it's on Osnimead, which is an old industrial area quite close to the, the city centre that's being redeveloped by by the university and this will be one of the the premier buildings in in that area and it's unique as far as Oxford's concerned because it won't just be for the university it will have people in it from business from industry from the public sector from a range of organizations all of whom are interested in the energy transition and it's founded on the pretty simple proposition that if you put people in the same place and, and give them space to work and talk to each other day to day, not once a year, then you will get faster innovation and hopefully make a bigger and quicker contribution to the transition. That sounds like a really good idea. So, Nick, A3 specializes in modeling energy demand supply and prices, as uh, as you may know, and we we help our clients meeting energy demand using sustainable solutions. But I think your work certainly looks in energy demand in, in much more detail, how it's formed. What are the drivers? What policies can influence energy demand? What are you finding in your work? So you're right, Matt. We think about energy demand from a pretty fundamental start. What, what do we use energy for? What services do we get energy for? And then there's a fairly simple um, proposition that the amount of energy that we use depends on the amount of those energy services and how efficiently we can shift energy into those services. So the energy efficiency of, of final conversion. And therefore, if we want to um, reduce energy demand, which we think will be a really important part of the energy transition, then we need to think about both the energy services 
and the energy efficiency with which they're delivered. And the work we've been doing for the UK shows that we could probably halve energy demand by 2050 if we do both of those things, if we address both of those. And that's pretty consistent with the work that's been going on in other developed countries and has been uh, summarized by the IPCC. So we're pretty confident that energy demand and the reduction of it can make a very significant contribution to the transition. A big part of that comes from electrification, uh, as I'm sure most people listening to this podcast will know. If you electrify transport, you tend to get a huge efficiency improvement because electric vehicles are more efficient than internal combustion engine vehicles. The same is true in heating, which is the other big energy use in cool and cold climates uh, because heat pumps are much more efficient than, than boilers. So the transition itself helps energy efficiency and energy efficiency helps the transition. We can see a real synergy uh, between the two. Is that reducing by 50% what the demand would have been otherwise or reducing it from today's level by down to 50%? That's absolute. That's a, that's a change between 2020 and, and 2050. We don't think that even in the worst case scenario, energy demand would go up a great deal. We would expect efficiency to Im- improve at, at some rate anyway. And the demand for energy services is probably going to go up less, even in the worst case scenario, than it has done historically. That's because most of the uh, more energy intensive activities of human beings, uh, things like energy intensive manufacturing, heating, most aspects of transport, we're sort of beginning to saturate demand. So some things are actually beginning to fall off already, such as uh, we're seeing that uh, car ownership and use amongst uh, younger generations is actually now lower than uh, amongst older generations. Hmm, interesting. And I know my uh, my three kids, none of them have a driving license yet, which means I keep on having to drive them everywhere, which is getting a bit... <laughs> I keep on trying to persuade them, but they, they're they living in London and they're happy on their on the tube or their bikes. So anecdotal, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and we, we had that anecdotal evidence as well, and we thought it was probably confined to cities and particularly large cities like London where you've got excellent public transport. But actually there does seem to be the, the effect does seem to occur even in rural areas as well. Now, whether that's because kids today spend all their time looking at mobile phones and don't have time to go anywhere, I don't know. But there's, it, it's not fully understood why this change is happening. Okay. And then you talked a little bit about you know, energy demand in, structurally in terms of heavy industry. Is that because the you know from a UK perspective, heavy industry is going elsewhere? And so you know, from, a, from, from a UK PLC viewpoint, we'll be importing energy intensive things into the country rather than making them? Well, that's definitely happened over the last 20 years. We've exported some of our more intensive energy intensive activities, particularly to East Asia. It's perhaps hard to see that uh, that trend continuing unless we completely uh, eliminated uh, heavy manufacturing in, in, in the UK, which I think rightly be some um, political um, re- resistance to. But I think we can uh, we can think about it if we think about it from the, the the consumption end. Use of steel, use of cement can probably be reduced quite a lot by better design, by better product recycling, 
And so when you start to look at how to reduce demand, you're not only looking at, at the energy system and things that I've talked about, but you are looking at circular economy issues, you're looking at wider transport systems and mobility systems, even looking at the food system and how we can get better food with less energy input. And when you look at most of these systems of provision, there's quite a lot of inefficiency in them. And you mentioned at the beginning that we're thinking about the role of digitalization in this. Digitalization can contribute to a lot of these trends by providing better information and control. Yeah. And it seems to me that when we've not been doing terribly well so far, and I don't know whether that's just my bias, but in terms of either overall energy efficiency in the UK and improvements in energy efficiency? Is it is it possible to measure, you know, looking back, how we've been doing against what a counterfactual may be uh, in terms of energy efficiency? And then, and then in terms of bringing digital tools in to uh, do a better job, well, how, how do you think that's going? Yeah, the historical point's an interesting one. With the former head of the Energy Technology Support Unit, Ian Lees, um, I, I did a ret- retrospective on the last 30 years, a couple of years ago. And we looked back at a report we did then, which projected how much energy efficiency we might get by 2020, which when we did, it seemed like a long way away and no one would ever check up. But we did check up on ourselves. And we'd actually done somewhat better on energy efficiency than we thought energy efficiency had contributed more than anything else to carbon emissions reduction over those 30 years. But I have to say the last 10 years has probably been not such a good story. I think policy has gone gone backwards in, in, in a number of areas. You can think of, of transport taxation, uh, perhaps but perhaps particularly the housing sector, residential energy demand, uh, energy efficiency programs have been cut back pretty significantly over the last 10 years. And that's clearly got issues now for carbon emissions, but also for energy security. So, Nick, would you say that we need to combine the solutions we already have in a new way or more intensively Or are there new solutions on the horizon that you see coming for energy demand reduction or addressing energy efficiency? There's always going to be some new solutions as as technology improves. But clearly, if we're going to improve efficiency quickly over the next 10, 20 years, which is probably what we need to do for for climate reasons, we're going to be using largely the technology uh, that is there. There is no magic bullet in this area. Energy use is spread across our economy. As I said, the, the, the fossil fuel transition, the transition into fossil fuels that happened within the industrial revolution means that almost all our activities now uh, in advanced societies are based on fossil fuels and therefore it's quite a lot of things that need to change the way we make things the way we travel about the way we heat our homes these are all going to have to change if we're going to get uh, to net zero and that's sometimes a difficult message uh, to get over um, people in many ways like to think there's a magic bullet solution to this but Sadly, there isn't. So is it consumer behavior that has to change or government policy? Or is it the companies that need to work harder towards net zero goals? Yes, all of those. <laughs> so so finance, manufacturing, commercial offers, business models, consumer behavior, social practices. I think 
it's unrealistic to think we'll get to the to a zero carbon transition globally by persuading 7 billion people individually to change their ways. We have to think of it in a more organized and, and structured way, which is why I think that large businesses, particularly energy sector businesses, but particularly governments have got a cru- crucial role to play. If we want change in the way that people travel, change in, in people's homes, it's government policy, government regulations, incentives, advice programs that are going to be central to delivering that. That's not to to provide a cop out for us individually and say we don't have a role, we do. But I think the structure needs to be there uh, first and foremost. And are there in the UK at the moment, are there suitable policies for, for improving energy efficiency and reducing energy demand? Uh, in general, no, particularly in, in the residential sector. As I mentioned, we, we've cut back our programs. We've cut back our both the, uh, the obligations on energy companies to do energy efficiency for their customers, and we've cut back on the advice programs for, for households and, and small businesses. Uh, so we're not in a good state at the moment, and we need to change that pretty quickly to address this really triple crisis that we now face of affordability, security risks, and climate change. Do you think it's, if we think of something like, you know, putting solar panels on roofs or improving residential household insulation, are those things that can be ramped up quickly? I think that depends what you mean by quickly, Matt. If It can certainly be done in, in a number of years and needs to be done in a number of years, but it does require training. It requires capacity building in the, the relevant sectors. So it's not going to happen in, in a matter of months. It means that as far as the immediate affordability crisis is concerned, we can say that running down our energy efficiency programs uh, has been a bad idea and has made that worse. It can tell us that we ought to ramp them up again and that will help us in any future crisis in this area but sadly the immediate affordability crisis is going to have to largely be addressed through uh, through incomes and, and prices and not through the long-term solution of using less energy or using energy more efficiently. Maybe if we focus on on heating and cooling a little bit more broadly obviously that's a massive part of our energy demand. Um, what uh, what approaches are there to address lowering energy demand for heating and cooling beyond maybe you know the insulation part? So I think the first thing is worth saying is that uh, yes, they're huge, but they're geographically quite different. So uh, globally, we expect that cooling might be at least as, as significant an energy user as heating by, by mid-century, though, though, though it, it isn't yet. But clearly, that's uh, largely due to due, will be largely due to growth in uh, economies uh, in uh, hotter parts of the world. Uh, in Northern Europe, uh, heating is still going to be massively more important uh, than, uh, than cooling. So cooling we can re- largely decarbonize in, in two ways. The first is to avoid mechanical cooling where we can. And uh, people have known how to do this for, well, literally thousands of years through, uh, through passive design of buildings. Quite why we can't put shutters on buildings in the way that the Romans did isn't entirely clear to me. We, we, we ought to be able to do those sorts of 
relatively straightforward, low-tech measures, um, but better de better design of buildings, higher thermal mass in buildings will be important in stopping there being a, a huge increase in the need for mechanical cooling in the sorts of climates that, that you and I live in. So heating will be the dominant issue in, in Northern Europe, in, in most of Europe, in fact. The only way really to decarbonize most of heating is, is I think, going to be through using decarbonized electricity. Biofuels may be able to um, make a significant contribution in countries where, well, crudely speaking, there's a lot of trees and not very many people. Uh, but in countries with a lot of people and not very many trees, we're going to have to look to other solutions. Electricity and hydrogen are, are, are the obvious candidates. I think in the short term, it's going to be electricity. And that means we have to look at uh, electric heat pumps because that's the way we combine zero carbon with um, energy efficiency. If we try simply to decarbonize by using just electricity uh, as uh, resistive heating, the 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 demand for electricity goes through the roof. So we are going to have to use efficient technologies and that probably means heat pumps. When I look on LinkedIn, quite often I see people who are very pro heat pumps and anti-hydrogen for heating. Other people are very pro hydrogen for heating and anti-heat pumps. Are you, uh, are you on one side or the other? I try not to be on a side, just as a matter of principle. Um, I think in any area like this where you, you know there's a major change coming and the, there's there's competing solutions you're going to get people who take one position or or the other as a, as a matter of principle or through vested interest to put it bluntly um i think there will be a role for both myself but i think we're not going to be in a position to expand hydrogen over the next 10 years we're just too far away from the testing and and demonstration that's needed uh to, to run homes off, off hydrogen. So I think we'll have to start with heat pumps. And I suspect they may, may therefore get a, an advantage in the market uh, that means that they um, become the dominant technology. They have an advantage in that they use energy more efficiently compared to using hydrogen in a boiler. You, you could, of course, use hydrogen in a, in a heat pump or a CHP system or something else that had um, high efficiency. But my guess is that heat pumps will um, predominate in most parts of the market, perhaps an exception in areas where we'll be using hydrogen in industrial processes. And so there'll be a hydrogen infrastructure in place that's around the, some of the major industrial areas. In terms of in terms of heat pumps and the ability to, to fit them to existing housing stock, what else do we need to do to uh, to make it comfortable? That's a very straightforward question. It doesn't seem to have a very widely agreed answer. I mean, we know that, that well-insulated houses um, can use heat pumps pretty effectively at the moment. We know that very badly insulated houses need to have their insulation improved before it's sensible uh, to put in, in, in a heat pump simply because uh, the, uh, the 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 efficiency of heat pump that you get in a very inefficient building is is poor. But where to draw the line between them, my colleagues or, or expert in these areas um, have, have some different opinions. I think we're going to have to do uh, some learning by doing here. Um, we're going to have to uh, roll out heat pumps in, in areas that we're certain they'll be a good solution. 
uh, and in areas where we're not so uh, certain. It's not clear at the moment how in the areas where there have been problems, and, and let's be clear, there have been problems in, in, in some cases with heat pump installations. It isn't clear to what extent the problem is fundamentally to do with the type of housing uh, or to what extent it's to do with um, the the installation and operation not being as good as it should be. So there's 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 learning to do, and, and we will doubtless make mistakes, um, but if we don't get on and start doing things, we won't get that learning. My uh, memory tells me that Sweden is somewhere with uh, very good heat pump penetration already. And so it seems it's perfectly possible, even in colder climes. Oh, oh absolutely. Certainly, um, uh, it, it's possible in, in, in countries a lot colder than the, the UK. In, in very cold conditions, you're better off using a ground source heat pump than an air source heat pump because you can use temperature underground, which is at the, the, the annual average rather than at the cold weather uh, temperature that you're running an air source heat pump off but unfortunately Swedish housing is not necessarily a great indicator for what would happen in UK housing because Swedish housing is so much better built is typical in the UK housing stock. And so therefore the as you say this learning by understanding any issues as they come up that that's a process which needs to go on. Any idea how long you know it could be before we're fully on top of all of those issues in the UK? fully on top of is a dangerous phrase, isn't it? I don't think we'll ever be fully on top of, of the issues. I think there's a serious question about whether we can reach the government's target of 600,000 new installations of heat pump a year, a year by 2028. 20, uh, um, I think that's a very ambitious target. There's certainly the government in that area has certainly been better at setting ambitious targets than putting in place the policies to realise them. We should try to reach that target it's there for a reason it's there because that's what uh, the, uh, the the climate change committee and, and government think puts us on a track to delivering uh, a 2050 net zero target uh, and if we're going to do that we will need to to um, start deploying heat pumps in much larger numbers than we have been doing pretty much now i think it's got serious implications for those of us who work in in research it means we're probably going to have to move more research out of laboratories and into the field to pick up those problems uh, and address them quickly as they happen. Talking about uh, different governments approaching things differently in different countries. So I'm both British and German, and there are very different narratives coming from the governments. In Germany recently, Federal Minister for Economic Affairs and Climate Action, Robert Habeck, he's basically asking people to buy a new shower head um, to save water and energy. Um, whereas in the UK, the government's narrative is more that the price signal will make people change their behavior anyway. And therefore, um, we don't need to give practical tips to people. We don't need to push people in, you know, in these ways or, or provide other incentives because the price signal will, will act like that. Does one work better than the other, or does it really, you know, incentivize people in a similar way? What what effects do these different approaches have from governments? There's clearly some ideological issues around the choices that that, that governments make. 
Um, but I think the research is now pretty clear that the most effective approach uses a combination of different policy instruments. That's perhaps not surprising, but it's not one that policy analysts have identified until the last 10 years or so. So if you think about the sort of policies that can be deployed, whether it's in water saving or, or, or energy saving, probably the most effective approach on its own is, is product standards, i.e. if you're interested in people having low flow shower heads, why, why do you sell high flow shower heads? We've done that very effectively in Europe with refrigerators, so you, you can't buy the most inefficient sort of refrigerators. Consumers are not up, up in arms about that, saying we demand the right to buy inefficient refrigerators because that would be a, a pretty silly thing to get up in arms about, but actually because they don't even know in most cases. It's a, a quiet bit of policymaking that's been done effectively in the background. So standards can set a minimum sort of level. I think incentives on top of that whether that's price incentives through the energy price or through prices, different differential prices for different efficiency equipment, that can also make a difference. But any economic signal is, is clearly most effective if the market is working properly. And we know one of the conditions for a market to work properly is that is that the participants in the market have have good information. Uh, and most energy users in, in homes don't have very good information. They don't know how what their energy is used for. They don't know uh, how much it would cost to reduce that. Um, they don't know how to do that. So a it sort of intuitively makes sense anyway, but actually research confirms is a combination of standards, incentives, and uh, advice and information wor works best. And, and so I, I find it a fairly irritating debate that one is better than the other when we we already know that a combination is best i think at the moment still we have the labeling scheme on white goods is that right nick uh we meaning those of us who are in the uk matt is that what you mean yeah yeah, yeah. we we do um technically the label is is different it's a uk label rather than a european label um so it, but that means it's got UK on it rather than uh, EU. Um, the the actual standards themselves, at a technical level, were adopted in, in into UK law when when we left the EU. So we have currently have the same standards, uh, but not entirely clear whether there's a commitment to improve those standards if and when the EU improves uh, its, its standards. By improve, I mean making them tighter. So. That's been the trend over the last few years. I'd expect that to continue. Uh, in Europe, um, the consultation documents in, from UK government last year implied that the UK would at least follow, perhaps even go faster. But some of the political statements we hear about um, EU red, so-called red tape might make you think that, that uh, uh, governments led by some people might want to go in, in, in the opposite direction. So I think we're in a pretty uncertain position on that in, 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 in the UK, but there's no doubt it's been a major factor in reducing our electricity use in, 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 in the UK and across Europe over the past uh, couple of decades. How wide are the standards now? Because I always 
I, I seem to remember it's got ratings of like double A to E or something on uh, on a sticker on the side of the machine. And I, do they retire? You know, do they improved over time. It's effectively re like retiring the worst performing ones over a period, is it? Um, so the, the standards ten, uh, tend to in, in, increase over time, but but on, only slowly, and they, that's done by eliminating a whole category. So for for um, white cold cold goods, as we call them, uh, refrigerators, freezers, uh, you can't buy anything worse than a, you couldn't buy anything worse than a, a C after the uh, the standard was uh, introduced. Then there's a separate process of rebasing the standards, which happened on a lot of goods last year. So something that was being so uh, and that's because we ended up in a situation where virtually everything was a rated so they had to invent a plus and a plus plus ratings which frankly wasn't very helpful uh, and everybody knew that so they were rebased so that uh, the mix of products on the market now looks much worse than it did two years ago but actually it's uh, it, it's the same or or or, or a bit better and that will allow um, the the market to work better because clearly, if people see they've got a choice between a, a C and an A, then they're, they're likely to interpret that correctly as the A being more efficient. Okay, uh, but but it might be better just that they don't have a choice at all and that everything's A from what you said before. Well, I wouldn't have everything A. I would say eliminate below a certain level and then have a spectrum where you use the the A A to H, A to E, whatever you choose as uh, as an indicator of efficiency above that standard so that consumers who are purchasing can get a, a good indication of what the, the range is. So still some choice for the consumer to be able to have a have a balance. Definitely. We're, we're, we're always going to have a range of, of different efficiencies on the market, but I think there's a very good case for eliminating things that don't make a, make a reasonable standard and for increasing that over time as the technology improves. And the same, I suppose, could be said of in the past in, in car manufacture, improving efficiency standards. I guess that, that has had quite a big impact, has it, in uh, in terms of our energy demand overall? Yes, it, it's somewhat fallen off in, in recent years. And of course, there have been a, a well-known high-profile scandals around um, the accuracy with which vehicle manufacturers reported, particularly actually some of the, the other emissions, including CO2, and all sorts of things that a reasonable person would consider cheating going on. So in the trials, you, you take the wing mirrors off, for example, so that you, you, you reduce uh, air resistance. So there's, a, as in other areas, a constant battle between, uh, between business and, 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 and regulator. But yeah, uh, over a period of time, certainly uh, um, standards in uh, for, for for cars have have played quite a big role in Europe. It's worked in a slightly different way in that manufacturers have been set a, a corporate average to meet. That's true in 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 the US as well with their corporate average fuel efficiency standard. So it means that a manufacturer uh, can produce a range of different cars, large and small, in particular. Because otherwise, you would simply drive the whole market towards smaller cars, which policymakers, uh, presumably largely policymakers who drive big cars, didn't think was desirable. I remember some years ago looking at the looking at the U.S. car and passenger driving market, whatever one would call call it, uh, and uh, the, there was a in, you know in it in the 
category of car, there'd been an efficiency improvement, but there'd also been a large trend to much bigger, heavier cars at the same time. So actually there was no, no, no overall improvement shown because people were getting into driving, you know, Humvees and uh, whatever else, large trucks in the in US. Yeah, that, that, that's, that, that's right. Again, it's a, a, a battle that the regulator has to fight. What, what is a car was the battle in this case, and, and utility vehicles were, were outside the range of what was deemed to be a car and therefore outside the standards. Yeah. So con- constant battle between the regulation and the, and, uh, and the company, although Bettina, I would guess with, um, with more and more ESG focus, and perhaps more formalization of exactly what ESG means in certain in certain areas that perhaps companies will will be trying to get ahead of the curve rather than battling against the regulator. Absolutely. And um, it's also the demand is also coming from the investors to find out who are the good guys in the market, who do I want to invest in if the aim of the fund and to find that out, um, companies will be under more pressure to report ESG metrics and these metrics will become more and more standardized so that they can be compared across companies. Yes, I would definitely say that. Very good. Yeah, I, I, I think that's one of the things that's changed in the last few years is the, the sense that largely because civil society is demanding a better performance, particularly on climate change, that uh, there is now a corporate and, and, and finance driver for these uh, for these changes as well. So I think at that point maybe we'll turn to um, to one one thing that's very much in the in the news, and that's around the uh, cost of living crisis, the geopolitical situation of Russian invasion of Ukraine. Bettina, over to you. Yeah. So of course we have commodity prices and energy prices at a historical high right now both because of the pandemic and the Russian invasion. And um, this has been driving the consumer really to the boundaries of, of what what's possible. And we're hearing really unbelievable numbers of future predictions of the cost of living crisis and what's happening already. So Matt and I, we're wondering that if you were in charge, Nick, of the UK today, you were elected prime minister. How would you uh, tackle this cost of living crisis? What would be your approach? I think the first thing to recognise and probably to be truthful with people about is that whilst the UK is an energy importer, there are real costs on the UK economy that somebody is going to have to bear and that there is no magic way out of that. And I think our experience of the pandemic is that the general public are are not stupid or irresponsible and that in difficult situations people can um, face face up to those sorts of messages. So because I've worked in energy efficiency for 30 years, I would the first thing I would do would be ramp the energy efficiency programs back up to where I and colleagues have been arguing they ought to be um, for, for the last 10 years, but 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 they haven't been. But as I said earlier, that's a, a long-term, a long run in the economist sense. It involves capital investment um, a, a, a approach so that will have big benefits in the long term to the overall efficiency with which we provide uh, energy services. Uh, but it's not going to solve the short-term um, affordability 
crisis, which is not an efficiency crisis, really, it's a distributional crisis. So it's, uh, this is uh, bad news for people who are on higher incomes who will have to pay uh, higher energy bills, but it's disastrous news for people on low incomes who will have to pay higher energy bills because energy is uh, energy costs are, are regressive with a far higher fraction of, of household income for low-income households. There's only really two ways to address that. One is to intervene on prices and the other is to inter- intervene on incomes. It's interesting that the, the idea that we should intervene on prices, which is now almost the, 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 the norm, and yet it's only nine months ago at COP26 that we were berating countries for subsidizing uh, energy, uh, developing countries mainly. Um, so you have to slightly worry about consistency there, though I do actually think that the rises have been so dramatic that some intervention on prices uh, has to happen. Uh, the other intervention you can make is on incomes. You can give poor people more income through through benefits or through specific um, tax changes like, like, like VAT. Neither of those is very easy to do. Uh, the two uh, are factors you need to think about are how well targeted is the intervention and which is it giving money to the lowest income households in the worst efficient housing or the people m- m- most in need. So that's one thing you need to, to think about. What about the balance, Nick, between, to, to my mind, you know, whichever way you move, you want people to take energy efficiency measures where they can and save energy. But on the other hand, you don't want them to be, you know, in discomfort. And I wonder about the the boundary. How do you, you know, is it possible for a policymaker really to get that right? I don't think there's a, a single right answer to that problem. I mean, you've defined the, 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 the problem very well there, Matt. I don't think that prices, very high prices alone, drive energy efficiency investment to the extent that's needed to a large extent because the poorest households or most affected can't afford the energy efficiency investment. So in that sense, uh, the market, a, mar- a pure market approach doesn't, doesn't work very well. The thing you need to take into account also is that it, it's more than just comfort. For those of us, say, who turned our thermostats, if we turn our thermostats from 20 to 18, that's about comfort. If you turn your thermostat from 17 to 12, it becomes about health. Uh, And we already have a large number of people in the UK who die each year because their homes are too cold. And uh, I think, to be blunt about it, there's going to be an even bigger number next winter who die for that reason. I would expect politicians in a democracy to take that very seriously. So, yeah, I think that those issues about uh, the poorest people not being able to afford to live in in a way that most of us would consider reasonable, those would be top of my agenda. But that's that's a political statement, but it's one I'd be prepared to defend. In that sense, whatever help is, is given has to be targeted, you know, first and foremost, at the, the people who are going to be in the worst position. And, and a lot, as you say, a lot of people are going to be in a terrible position this winter with where prices are going, knowing that we have a lot of people, you know, of all different ages, but especially elderly who can't, you know, even now, as you say, have struggled to heat their homes, effectively struggled to keep warm. 
or winter. I, I was wondering, you know, whether there's more could be done, especially this winter, in bringing communal spaces together, for instance, as, in, as an emergency measure to give people somewhere to go in order to stay warm during the day, for instance. I think there is increasing discussion of that. And we're seeing, I, I saw yesterday that it was reported that um, library and museum services were seriously considering uh, having this function as a, a warm space for people to go. Um, you could see that, that uh, schools, particularly primary schools, might play a, 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 a similar function. I, I have mixed feelings about it. It, it, it. I can see that that is something that will be be necessary, but it does seem very sad to me. We've reached the point uh, that point in this country where we sort of give up on the idea that people might be able to have a, a home that's 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 livable in, to put it to put it bluntly. Which is why I personally think that the, the hits that we're taking economically on this front should be borne out of general taxation rather than on, on, on the backs of the poorest people in society. And then a massive programme of insulation, of improvements to buildings and investment perhaps in, in replacing boilers for, for air source heat pumps uh, targeted at, at, the, at the people who are the least well off in society to try and over time improve that situation. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Uh, to the extent you've got energy efficiency programs, there are, there are two things you can do. In the, one is to ramp them up. Uh, but as I said, on its own in the short term, that's not um, hugely effective. The other is to target them on the people who need them most. And that's not always uh, an easy thing to do because people don't necessarily self-identify as being hugely in, in, in need. But I think there are agencies, local government charities, uh, campaign groups who work on, on, on energy poverty in particular and poverty in general who can, can, can usefully point people in the right direction there. Are there other barriers to um, bringing about energy efficiency? Because it seems it makes sense economically. And you talked about the initial investment and whether people can afford it. But are there other barriers? Why does it take so long for people to catch on that energy efficiency is, is the way to go? Uh, it's a good question. And there's been a lot of work over the last 30 years on that. I mean, certainly the, 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 the capital investment barrier is a, a, a very important point. And my colleague, Brenda Boardman, pointed out 30 years ago that what makes fuel poverty different from other forms of poverty is this point about capital investment, that it's a lack of capital rather than a lack of income that's the main distinguishing factor um, for, for fuel poverty. Uh, there, there are other barriers, uh, knowing what to do, knowing what can be done, um, having a supply chain out there that can deliver it. So at the moment, there isn't really a profession of people who can uh, tell you how to upgrade how to upgrade a typical say Victorian terraced house that's that's not uh, a job that anybody has ever has ever developed and we need that sort of business model to develop driven by regulations about well, what 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 you can and can't do in an energy efficiency uh, investment but the supply chain isn't there for some of these more complex and difficult measures either certainly not a supply chain that is a sufficiently skilled to do the, the the more complex work that's needed to reach very high uh, energy performance standards. So it, it, you mentioned earlier, Bettina, that you you are, are have a foot in 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 two camps in, in in Europe. In Britain, anybody 
can claim to be a builder. You just say, I am a builder. You don't have to have any skills or qualifications at all. And I think that tells us something about how we've historically treated the importance of good building in the UK. Is that true in Germany? No. <laughs> I'll try to answer that. Although, um, yeah, it, it, it used to be highly regulated, whereas now it's a little less regulated. But um, you have to go through a number of years of training and you have to learn from from more senior people and and their dif- different levels of the uh, uh, the job. So it's not just the builder, but different types of seniority. So you can easily see what kind of training people have and who they've learned from. So we, we've, of course, done that in some buildings trades in the UK, notably in gas engineers and electricians. So we've done it where there's a, a health and safety issue, an obvious health and safety issue. And it's always been the case, I think, that it shows us we don't treat environment as equally important as health and safety, that we don't apply the same standards to carbon emission, to, to trades that can deliver carbon emissions reductions to those that just deliver health and safety. So better, a better approach to building standards, perhaps through uh, regulation of builders themselves in the UK. Yeah. Yeah, standards and and uh, culture as well. And not I'm not getting at the trades here. I think it's it's our culture as as users of those trades as well. Do we just want the cheapest job we can get, or do we want a job that that's that's done at a an appropriate level for a, a, a modern building stock? Mm. Very good. So, um, Bettina, any other? I don't think there's any other burning questions. No, it sounds like there's a lot of work to do for the energy systems hub <laughs> in Osney Mead coming up. <laughs> yeah, I reckon so. You'll be you'll be keeping uh, yourselves uh, pretty busy, and uh, all the people that are there in the hub keeping themselves pretty busy, sharing ideas and um, innovating, bringing forward new new concepts. I guess, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. And um, if anybody, particularly anybody, is based in Oxfordshire, works in Oxfordshire, lives in Oxfordshire, do get in contact with us because uh, a lot of the work will, will, will be local, though uh, as, a, a, as a university institute, the Zero Institute, will, of course, be looking to collaborate uh, nationally and globally as well. Well, we'll uh, maybe you invite us down sometime. We can pop along, bring some of our, uh, bring some of our energy uh, consultants down to chat with people. Maybe that could be a also a good uh, a good chance for for sharing of ideas that would be great yeah so with that i'd like i'd like to thank you nick for joining us as ever thanks very much for for that and thanks patina also thank you yeah it was a pleasure to be here today well thanks very much for listening to fueling the transition from a3 management consulting i hope you enjoyed our podcast and know we'll be uh, putting another one up before too long so please subscribe We're available on all the usual channels and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.